for a status, I am Malihirazazan. In her recent op-ed in the New York Times titled Gaza Screams for Life, Gaza-based writer Rawan Yaghi describes her visit to the site of the Great March of Return protest at the border two days after the Friday's bloody massacre. She writes, quote, I left the protest thinking of the rest of Gaza, shell-shocked for years, its borders closed and its United Nations-funded infrastructure in decay. I thought of the kids in my neighborhood who pay football in what used to be the ground floor of a tall residential building with bare concrete columns and poking iron rods as their only audience. And I thought, once again, Gaza the injured has come out to protest and to scream for life. The daily reality isn't very different from other places in the world in the sense that the ones who have jobs go to their jobs, children go to school, students go to universities, they have dreams, they aspire to achieve them, and all of that. But, you know, it's it's the things that are missing that sometimes ruin your day or affect your mood, like coming back home and not finding electricity or realizing that the sea is actually looted and you can enjoy looking at it, but really you can't go into it. You can't swim unless you want to risk your, your health. Not having clean water, all of that Gaza is unlivable talk. People try to overcome this. Some of them don't like that fact, you know, they don't like coping with every every pressure that is added. Like every year things get worse in terms of economy, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of borders. Everything gets tighter and people are sick of coping with that, coping with the fact that things are decaying or getting worse in time. And also the fact that Politically, nothing nothing is moving. Everything is kind of on hold, if you like. Can you so, talk yeah. about that a little more? What do you mean everything is on hold? What kind of a political shift do you think will relieve some of the pressure on people who live in Gaza? So the political stalemate is the fact that Hamas and Fatah or Hamas in Gaza and the PA in the West Bank are in constant division. You know, people got really hopeful in October, September, October, when there were news about a, a reconciliation. But then things fell apart again. And that's what I mean by political state on hold, mm. that nobody's looking for a solution, that everybody, including Israel and Egypt, are kind of happy about the situation, you know, yeah. just uh, close the borders, suffocate the economy. Uh, starve the people, just like uh, give them some breaks so they don't explode. And that's fine, just keep the prison at a minimum cost. Just the fact that everyone is kind of holding on to uh, a political position. We don't really know who's who's honest, who's who's telling the truth. And to, to be honest, and uh, people are, are right, rightfully doubtful. They don't trust anyone. They don't trust Fatah. They don't trust Hamas. They don't trust uh, Egypt. And they certainly don't trust Israel. So people are living this kind of 
state where they're helpless and they're unsure. They're unsure about everything. And this is part of why this, these protests and this march was, was called for. Who called for the march? The idea was initiated by a group of intellectuals. And it was called for by intellectuals, academics, and uh, the major political parties in Gaza. And how did they organize so many people, 30,000 to 40,000 people? I don't think they organized it. They just called for it. So you would hear speakers going around the streets and saying, this is a call for the Great March of Return on the eastern borders of Gaza, and that it would be a peaceful demonstration to call for the right of return. And uh, yes, all of the political parties called for it, which is why it's so huge. It's all of the political parties as well as independent figures. So everyone, like I said in the article and like I witnessed in the in the protests, people feel like the march isn't does not represent one entity as in one political party, but represents the Palestinian entity and the Palestinian spirit. You wrote a beautiful opinion piece in the New York Times. You visited the camp on Sunday, a couple of days after the bloody day when thousands of Palestinians were shot at by the Israeli snipers and there were tear gas. Give us a sense of what that place looks like, some of the conversations you had with families, with women, men, and children who are staying there till May 15. What did they tell you about why they're there? So the place is, it's actually one of the most beautiful areas of the Gaza Strip. That's the eastern border. It's mostly agricultural land. So when you live in the center of the city or farther away from the from the border, it gets denser with buildings mm. rather than trees and fields. And um, that area is just beautiful. It's full of olive groves and farmlands. And when you look eastwards, you can also see farmlands and green fields into what is now Israel. But the area that is designated for the protest has a few tents, really big tents, that uh, kind of remind you of the 1948 refugee crisis in Gaza, in the West Bank, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. UN tents, if you if you know what I'm talking about. Yes, so yes. kind of a white uh, row of, of tents with uh, slogans saying, I will return or I have the right to return, or the family of so-and-so will return. So it was, it was kind of beautiful and sad at the same time that there is this much hope that these people feel about returning and about having the world recognize their right to return. But it was also sad in the sense that it's such a long tragedy that we've been carrying this dream or this burden or this right or whatever you want to call it we've been carrying it for 70 years but it was it was um i guess it's still hopeful if, if people are still clinging to it some of the conversations i had well i was talking to some of the women who seemed really powerful they had really strong voices and they did not shy from singing or screaming or uh, shouting things like we shall return or 
singing the song that I wrote about in the article, a really famous famous one for us Palestinians. Like some of them were talking about why they're there, expressing the fact that they're there because they cling to the right of return and they want that right. One woman said that she has lost relatives, she had lost her own sons, uh, but that she was there because there are prisoners and there are lands and there is the horrible situation in Gaza, that all of these things are worth marching for, are worth protesting, that we as Palestinian people have have always had a voice and have always fought for our rights. It's kind of made me shy away from my own kind of timidity or <laughs> political correctness or whatever, because she didn't care who was listening. Mm. She just spoke freely and expressed her mind. And someone told you this march is not a march to return to our land at this very moment. It is a mm-hmm. way for us to speak and to raise our voices. I want to go back to the horrible situation that people in Gaza are living under. As you said, there is lack of electricity, drinking water, as a matter of fact, according to World Health Organization. 95% of the water in Gaza is undrinkable. The power plant is not working. 80% of the people in Gaza live on international aid. 60% are under the poverty line. There is almost 50% youth unemployment in Gaza. So how do you get water? Where do you get the electricity from? And what are the impacts of not being able to drink clean water, not being able to have electricity, which is going to impact so many other things, including hospitals? What are the ramifications, the consequences of living under such stifling conditions? My own family buys water, buys drinking water. We fill in a tank on the roof almost uh, once every week or a week and a half. We buy it from a company that I assume buys it in turn from Israel. Hmm. I'm not completely sure about this, but I know that the aquifers of Gaza are all polluted. Yes. So we need to get it from somewhere else. The electricity... We get about four hours a day of electricity. That's because the uh, power plant, it does work, but it can't achieve its 100% capacity because of bad maintenance as well as lack of fuel. So we have to wait for either Egypt or Israel to allow us to buy fuel from them. (laughs) The second question, what are the ramifications of this? There are many. The most dangerous ones are health consequences. We only use the drinking water to drink. So we use polluted water to do everything else. Mm. We use it to wash, to wash the dishes, to wash the food sometimes, and to water plants. And this is your tap water, right? Yes, this is our tap water. Mm -hmm. That will definitely affect our, our health, our digestion systems, our skin, everything. We don't even know if it will have long-term effects Mm. on our bodies. 
we do know that our plants will have long-term effects on our bodies because they have cancerous agents, but they're all we have. And then, as you mentioned, the hospitals, the electricity situation for the hospitals is just terrifying because there are lives that depend on water. There are babies' lives that depend on water. You can just imagine a hospital having to face blackouts every, maybe more than once a day. And then there are the equally important dangers of this, which are the mental health effects. If you live in a place like this, you know that you can't go anywhere. You're locked inside. But you're not only locked inside, you're locked inside with a food ratio, an electricity ratio and a water ratio. It's almost like torture, but a not directly physical torture. So you kind of live in this constant state of, I don't know what to call it, and I don't know if it has a name in, in mental health or in psychology, but this constant I mean, people state are suffering being, from post-traumatic syndrome. Exactly, which is what this adds to. Imagine a 10-year-old boy who was born in Gaza and has experienced so many traumatic events, even if they haven't directly experienced an explosion or something, they will suffer from uh, post-traumatic stress disorders. Gaza isn't very big. It's it's 40 kilometers long and it's 11 kilometers wide. So anything that happens anywhere is going to affect everyone. Most people here have some sort of uh, mental health. I mean, I can't generalize. There are no studies that prove this. But just logically, if you force a population of 2 million people to go through excessive military attacks, then you will have a traumatized population. Mm. And that population has to live with that trauma, as well as the unlivable conditions and the fact that they don't have basic rights. And no jobs. Um, I was reading a shocking story by Agence France Press that was about overwhelming majority of the men who've not been able to pay their debt. They're unemployed, they have racked up a lot of debt, their business have gone bankrupt. And according to some estimates, 42,500 people were arrested in the past year for failing to pay their debt. And at least 600 people are currently in jail on similar charges. Gaza is described as an open-air prison because Israel controls the air, land, and the sea. People can neither get out or get in. You wrote a piece about checkpoints and your Mm -hmm. own experience crossing Eretz checkpoint. You wanted to go to Jerusalem to go to American embassy because you had an interview to get your visa. So can you talk about what it means for someone who gets the opportunity, or as you say, is privileged enough to be able to cross that border, what is that experience like? That experience is one of the most stressful experiences one one can go through. I mean, I've been through it. A lot of people I know have been through it. And it's just, it's like sitting with your heart in your hand. Because 
most people who want to get out don't want to get out because they want to go on holiday, which is uh, a valid reason to travel. (laughs) People need to go on holiday, they should go on holiday, but it's not the case for people in Gaza. When people want to travel here, they're either on their deathbed or they're a student who has had a scholarship to study abroad or they've had a job opportunity abroad. And all of these cases are really critical cases in terms of your future. So if your health depends on it, or if your future depends on it, then getting that piece of paper that says that you're allowed to get out is the dream, basically. (laughs) It's a nerve game for everyone who's involved. It's a nerve game for Egypt and for Israel and maybe even the PA as well as Hamas, maybe. I don't even know. I haven't tried to get out recently. Talking in um, practical terms, you have to apply for a permit. If you want to get out through Eretz, which is the checkpoint between Israel and Gaza, you have to apply for a permit from Israel, and you have to apply two months in advance. And during these two months, you will not hear any news about your permit. You will only hear about it the day before, the date you requested to get out, or the day of. So you kind of live in this limbo where you don't know anything for two months. The chance of you getting rejected is 90%. So you live on 10% hope. It's inhumane. It makes us feel dehumanized as well, because not having the right to move, not having the right to determine your own steps in life, your own decisions in life is dehumanizing. You'd have to read something that talks about it more in detail because it's not an experience I can tell you about in two minutes. And I really suggest for people to read your piece in Mondawise. It's called The Checkpoints. Something you write in this piece that um, I hadn't heard before, you write checkpoints at border crossings in Gaza are also a cruel way to turn needy individuals into collaborators. Can you talk more about this? What happens? A lot of cancer patients specifically have been manipulated and blackmailed into being informers or collaborators for Israel. You ask for a permit to because you can't get cancer treatment here in Gaza. You have to go to Israel to get it. So the Ministry of um, Health applies for a permit or gives you the necessary papers to apply for a permit. And then you might be asked to come to the border for an interview or what they call it interview. And then in the interview, they basically blackmail patients or people who really need to get out. Uh, So they say, okay, we won't let you out unless you cooperate with us. And cooperate is a a nicer, milder version (laughs) of what they really want. They just exploit people's needs, and especially people whose lives depend on being allowed out. So, so they get the permission to leave Gaza, and then when they come back, they become collaborators? If they agree to it. If they don't, they won't be allowed out. Can you give us some examples? 26-year-old Fadi al who needed a, a heart transplant and who 
basically kept applying for a permit for months without luck, without any response. He eventually had a call from Israel's intelligence service who said, we know that the device that is keeping you alive is going to stop soon and that he needed to make a simple call for his predicament to be solved, basically, and for him to be allowed out. But he didn't. And because he he was locked or trapped in Gaza, he passed away. And because his heart failed in 2013, there are so many cases like this. Rewan Yaghi is a writer based in Gaza and a contributor to the 2014 anthology Gaza Writes Back. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com to listen to more conversations on the scene reports and discussions visit our website statushour.com or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go you can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter thanks for listening and for more conversations please visit statushour.com <music>